0: Hi, this is David M. Higgins. I am a science fiction scholar who writes about reactionary politics, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation.
1: I'm Wendy Sheridan, and this is The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation.
2: Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and welcome to episode 134. This is our final show in the season of democracy. We have been exploring a lot about our democracy and others around the world. We've learned what it's like to hold a local political office, how activism affects the democratic system in the U.S., how history can inform our understanding of our current situation, and uh, lots of other things. And today, we both talk to David M. Higgins, the author of Reverse Colonization, Science Fiction, Imperial Fantasy, and Alt-Victimhood. We are excited to bring you that interview. But before that, Wendy geeks out about the animated Star Trek Lower Decks in the Geekscape. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) So how was your Fortnite, Wendy? Uh,
1: it was okay,
2: you know. I went to PhilCon,
1: which was fun. And actually, you went to PhilCon, which I hope I did. was fun for you too.
2: It was. And, it uh, was a good time, absolutely.
1: It was, and it was made better by your presence. Honestly, you know, <laughs> I I spent a lot of time in the game room, and I ended up buying an expensive game, and I need to go buy another expensive game. Indie games are not cheap.
2: Right. <laughs> so, right. I like the one we were playing with the match well sort of figure out the it was like pictionary but no. yeah
1: yeah i like that too that was fun Well, we weren't playing by the rules that was the
2: other that's why other well, thing i like yeah i don't need rules. <laughs> <laughs> the way we did it was good i had a, a pretty good thanksgiving weekend i had a couple of friends over and we cooked and ate lots of amazing stuff <laughs> like it was too much all too much but we did vegan thanksgiving we did a vegan full english breakfast on saturday morning i guess and just you know but it was it was a lot of food but reasonable and we ate reasonably within the okay midst of it somehow i don't know how to explain it and we did some hiking and stuff so it was cool it was good, but you good have to time. tell me what a, a vegan
1: Full English breakfast is because, like, a full English breakfast has lots of meat.
2: (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, you can do beyond sausage and some fake and bacon. And there's, I usually do a a tofu scramble, but we did a different kind of, I think, just egg kind of thing. Oh. Uh, There's the tomato, there's baked beans, there's the mushrooms, home fries kind of a thing, toast, tea. It was it's it's a it's yeah. a ridiculous plate full of food, but and it's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Oh boy. So where what do we gotta tell folks?
1: Well, as always, you could catch a new episode of the Leftscape every other Wednesday. Subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you sign up for automatic downloads so you never miss a show.
2: Yes, and please do follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter such that it is uh, (laughs) at Leftscape. And you can check out our show notes on the website, which feature links for you to follow our show guests, and you can get more info about everything we discuss. And while you're on our site, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout and really your downloads likes and follows and subscriptions really do help us grow and we really appreciate your follows and shout outs wherever you can so thanks
1: yeah and on patreon supporters can listen to our exclusive segment we should be recording this the most recent topic that will go up This month will be about love languages, and you can join us at any level starting at just $1 a month. If you support us at the $3 backstage pass level, however, you will get invitations to our periodic hangouts on Zoom, Discord, Facebook Live, or some other platform, as well as all of our We Should Be Recording This conversations and other special segments.
2: Yeah, we should maybe plan a holiday hangout. I think that would be fun. yeah, We can see what's, you know, to add something to, more to our crazy schedules <laughs> coming up. But, but no, I think that might be fun. Oh, I wanted to say that we got a very encouraging message message from Plady Lady. And Plady oh. Lady said, your podcast remains a breath of political fresh air for me. And oh. that is really encouraging. And thank you for that. Wow. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. One of the bits of feedback I've gotten over time is that people tend to like the all the news we can handle because, like, they also can only handle so much news. So it kind of feels <laughs> authentic or something like that. So I hope we don't – sometimes I feel overwhelmed by news, and I'm like, why are we even talking about this? But maybe, maybe just enough is right. I don't know, but I would – I love to hear people's feedback positive and, and constructive uh, so we can, <laughs> can always you know, see, see where people are at and what is working for everyone.
1: Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. I was going to throw this idea out there that we may do another, li- <laughs> another attempt at a live house hinge <laughs> on the morning of the solstice. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we didn't do it last year, right? <laughs> well, last year was cloudy. I mean, if it's that's cloudy, right. it doesn't happen.
2: Right, right. So, house is a is a wonderful phenomenon. I think we should do it.
1: <laughs> I will, yeah, and I because I've been getting up before the sun anyway, so I might as well try it again. So, uh, keep an eye out on December twenty first for house Henge live, most yes, likely and, on Facebook.
2: <laughs> and and just the, the the short version of it is that like Wendy's house is aligned in an exact way that like the, the light can beam through like two different windows on either side of the house. Is that what it is basically? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's a
1: wall. There's a wall no. that it, that cuts across and I should take a picture now because the sun, when it comes up is like 12 inches in from the edge of that wall. And on the solstice, it just misses that corner. So it's like the edge of that wall. is like the demarcation for how far south the sun Rises and you know because we're at whatever it is, the 42 degrees north or okay. latitude. so nice. it that's anyway. So <laughs> Cel- <laughs> celestial mechanics, I will not talk about that now, so okay
2: <laughs> well, perhaps we shall make merry and celebrate the solstice in fine fashion. so' we'll yes see. <laughs> yes. all right, all right, let's get to
1: our random facts. okay. <laughs>
2: Well, first random fact is that Jack Cole was born in New Brunswick, New Jersey, in 1911, and he is known as the father of theatrical jazz dance. Cole's choreography developed a mode of jazz folk ballet that prevails as the dominant dancing style in today's musicals, films, television commercials, and music videos. That is really cool. Yeah, I did not know that until about half an hour ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my fact today. Is competitive art
1: used to be an Olympic sport between 1912 and 1948? The international sporting events awarded medals for music, painting, sculpture, and architecture. And I am incredibly angry that they stopped doing
2: that. <laughs> I'm. Uh, it <laughs> fascinates me. How do you judge the art? But I guess how do you judge, you know, skating and dance? I guess we, and music.
1: I. But yeah. I would love to see, I, I would be watching the Olympics now if that <laughs> shit was happening.
2: That sounds wild.
1: And not only that, but I mean, could you imagine getting getting picked for like the Olympic team for music or something like that? And it's like,
2: <laughs> what
1: a fucking wasted opportunity for us. <laughs> I'm
2: so mad. Oh, man. <laughs> Bring back Olympic music. Yes. <laughs> Definitely different. Oh, it's going to probably,
1: it would probably end up like the Eurovision song contest. or That's something. what
2: I'm thinking. It's, yeah, it's like, it's that kind of, but I movie would, movie. I don't care. <laughs> all right. Well, I have one more fact for us today. Not all sperm are created equal. <laughs> Take everything any given sample of sperm, and you'll find that some are dead or immobile and others are uh, relatively speedy. And apparently they get even speedier in response to chemical signals from a woman's vagina and egg, which is just interesting. Um, (laughs) And viable sperm should move at 30 micrometers per second or more, preferably in a forward moving direction and not just all over the place. (laughs) So this was very much, uh, this was an interesting fact, (laughs) set of facts, I guess, in that (laughs) paragraph.
1: (laughs) Anyway. Okay, let's get to all of the news that we can handle. There have been over 600 mass shootings this year. And a mass shooting is where four or more people have been shot. And that's almost two per day. And apparently, that also happened in 2021. I don't know if the increase in the number of shootings was like a reaction to all of the lockdown in 2020 or not, but we are the only country where this is happening. And obviously, thoughts and prayers are not enough. And I I don't know what to do about this because this is something that many people are screaming about, hoping that the last session of Congress before the new term, they can maybe pass something. I have no idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there seems to be a real direct correlation between the uptick in whatever kind of negative rhetoric is Prevailing and 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 the uptick in shootings. I mean, whether it be anti-Semitism or anti, you know, LGBTQ stuff, and its it's solution is. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. I still, I am kind of a. Well, I'm not a free speech absolutist, but I, I, I would rather err on the side of letting people say their bullshit and their positive words than just whatever we need to say, but. It's also clear that the real, you know, language and uh, I don't know what the word is, you know, just (laughs) the attitude that really um, talk about wanting to cause actual harm, like, leads to people causing actual harm. So I think that that's, you know.
1: Radicalization, I think, is maybe the word you're looking for.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that we don't need. So, I mean, I think the cultural work that people are doing to lessen that kind of stuff is helpful. Maybe, uh, you know, hate crime legis- legislation, we've had that for a while. Maybe not, you know, too perfected amount of, of of really seeing those for what those kinds of crimes that they are. I don't know. It's It sucks. And I we feel to, weirdly it's, it's- resigned to the fact that we have so many shootings in this country, which is...
1: It, well, there needs it's to terrible. be fewer guns, There yeah. needs to be fewer guns is that's yeah. the only thing, you know, yeah, I anyway, think that's the main thing yeah <sighs> anyway, anyway i I really didn't want to bring it up, but I read that this morning, and it's like, God damn it, <laughs> it's like yeah. two a day, it's like it's insane, it's insane,
2: it is, and, and I can't and i' i you know not that I forget about them, but it's like I have to I do compartmentalize a bit I go like, oh shit, yeah, that did happen, right. You kinda have or whatever, to whatever because it's so much. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Anyway. The next thing
1: is Merriam Webster has I guess it was this morning, Monday morning, released its word of the year for twenty twenty two. And that word is gaslighting.
2: The top I would have definition thought that was a been a, oh sorry. I, I would have no, get, thought that would have was a word a lot sooner than now for the year word of the year. But go on.
1: Well explain. <laughs> Their top definition for gaslighting is the psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, or memories, and typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence, and self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and a dependency on the perpetrator. And the reason I think they picked it this year is... They saw a huge uptick in looking up that word this year, like 1700 mm. percent or something like that. And and they were surprised. It had been increasing in usage over the past, probably since uh, the 45th president started his campaign. But this past yeah. year, it really it really went up the The people looking it up and using it. it. It was showing up everywhere. So they said, okay, it's time. This is our word of the year.
2: Interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. I have a feeling that I, w- I wonder if like sort of both sides of the aisle are, are accuse each other of gaslighting in various ways and it just gets... <laughs> of course. It's gotten, over, it's gotten overexposure as it were. Not overexposure. I think it's a good term. It's a useful term.
1: It is. So. I find it. I find it. It's useful. It also highlights that we as a country are being fed a whole lot of propaganda, and yeah. we need to be, as individuals, we need to be vigilant in not just accepting whatever it is you're seeing online at face right. value. You have to Absolutely. go back and fact check. If they don't fact check, like under the post or the tweet or whatever, which had been happening. And I think now on Twitter, that's kind of fallen by the wayside since there's like nobody left to work there now. Anyway, you kind of have to do this stuff yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get gaslit.
2: (laughs) Yes. And one of the critiques I've heard about the media in general is that this overemphasis on both sides when both sides really aren't equal, but they feel that they need to seem balanced, even when there's a clear point to the news that you want to present, but you have to like say the other side anyway. And it makes it sometimes it makes a fringe group seem bigger or more valid than they are because they're just trying to say, well, this person says this and this person says that, you know? Right. And that can have a gaslighting effect because people will think, oh well, a lot of people believe the earth is flat you know or whatever it is and um, when it's not the case you know so yes pay attention <laughs> <laughs> i was just listening to a story today about the respect for marriage act and that is a bipartisan bill in congress currently to repeal the defense of marriage act which back in the 90s basically said that marriage is between one man and one woman you know right that Bill Clinton signed, unfortunately, which made me mad. (laughs) But anyway, so this bill is a federal bill that would recognize the validity of same-sex and interracial marriages in the United States, and also they've put in some. They've been working on a version in the in the Senate that would also protect religious liberty, so it wouldn't force people from certain religious groups to have to perform same-sex marriages, I guess, or something like that. Yeah. The sausage has been made a little bit so that, you know, it's protecting religious liberty. And it's also about ensuring that this does not validate group marriages or polygamy or whatever. So, oh, so that's, uh, I have, you know, it's one of those where there's there's progress and then there's like, oh, but you all don't count so you know <laughs> yeah if you're poly well, and there are some there are some poly people who do want to work toward marriage and i know how this goes where certain things will be understood before certain other things
1: yes yeah, I guess, yeah. You know. and well also you know there's the dark side of polygamy and yes. the you know that has to get worked out <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah, there's the cultish, you know, scary yes. version of that, which which is another another whole thing. But I'm actually encouraged to see that interracial marriage is included in this so that, you know, if the Supreme Court gets oh. ideas about, you know, we don't have privacy, therefore we don't have the right to just, you know, have obvious rights that we
1: to have <laughs> um, Yeah, I wish they could have gotten
2: they could have jumped on this before Roe B-
1: v. Wade got overturned. But you yeah. know, yeah. anyway. But yes, this is this is the House kind of saw the writing on the wall with Roe v. Wade. They said, "Oh shit, we better immortalize this in law, so then the Supreme Court can't adjudicate these things."
2: Right, exactly. And I'm not sure when it's coming up for the Senate at first they thought they maybe wouldn't have the votes to put it forward, but it seems that they do and they're going to have a full vote. So, I'm Yeah.
1: Well, I hope it uh, I hope it does because if they have to wait till the next term and it has to go through the House again, it's not going to pass. Right. Yeah. Probably, you know. But anyway, yeah. I found this today in The Guardian and It was kind of shocking and uh, very interesting to me. And This is, the government of Barbados is considering plans to make Richard Drax, a wealthy conservative member of parliament, the first individual to pay reparations for his ancestors' pivotal role in slavery. Barbados became a republic a year ago after it removed Queen Elizabeth II as head of state. The Drax family pioneered the plantation system in the 17th century and played a major role in the development of sugar and slavery across the Caribbean and the U.S. I believe that he's actually been to Barbados recently to talk to them about this stuff. And I am very interested to see how this plays out because that family, you know, they got rich off of the backs, literally off the backs of their slaves. and. Now they kind of need to make reparations, and it'll be very interesting to see how this does play out over the you know, over in the future. So
2: I'll be keeping an eye on that. Yeah, definitely. Wow, it will be. <laughs> yes, it will be interesting. That's all I would say. I, I will be. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I have been paying attention to the, the elections in Australia. And I've been learning how these systems work, which is, it sounds a lot more complicated than the way we do elections, which is kind of fascinating. And we did have Matt Bird on earlier. We replayed that interview with him uh, earlier in the season about how it all works. Victoria just had their state election on Saturday, the 26th of November, and they elected their 60th parliament. And all, it's it's like they do all, like all one state does everything at once, all 88 seats in the legislative assembly and 40 seats in the council were up for election. And I guess, like, the real upshot of it that I gathered was that the premier, uh, Daniel Andrews, won a third consecutive term. And that was sort of a reformation referendum <laughs> on his dealing with COVID. Like, a lot of people felt that wow. their restrictions were too much, you know, and they were saying it was oppressive and all of this. But it sort of really turns out that basically people thought. The majority thought it was okay. So Put is Labor so- they're
1: liberal? Like they're. Labor left is their more
2: liberal. Yes, yes. Labor is the more liberal. And party. the liberals are more right. Exactly. Okay. It, it- <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Labor made some gains and uh, some of the Greens got in as well. And there are a whole lot of crazy parties that uh, some of them, I don't know how many of those wound up getting in, but it. It's interesting. It's interesting to learn about for sure. But I was glad to see that because a lot of people in the U.S. that were like anti-vax were like saying, well, look at Australia. It's becoming a tyranny and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I'm glad to see that at least in their vote over there, it's, you know, it was basically paying attention to your health care. So that's good. I'm happy for that.
1: And our final news item for the day is... One of the most massive creatures to have ever walked the Earth, the Patagotitan Maorum, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, was a 57-ton behemoth that would have shaken the ground as it stomped over homelands, which now form modern Patagonia. Its skeleton is 37 meters long and 5 meters in height, and a meter is about a yard, a little over a yard. So this thing was... Over 15 feet tall, and I can't even... It's huge. It's significantly larger than the London Museum of Natural History's most famous dinosaur, Dippy the which (laughs) Dippy. Yeah, (laughs) which used to loom over its main gallery. This new specimen will be on display at the London Natural History Museum either now or very shortly. You Was know, this so just
2: discovered this this I think it's or? been
1: discovered a while ago. This is like they've they've cat made replica casts to display <laughs> the creature in its bony entirety in the in the museum. You know, kind of like how we have like the New York Museum has that big T-Rex right. in the front and they're they're going to put this guy in in so pretty cool that's a, yeah, I, I think those that type of dinosaur, the long-necked thing, we used to call when we were kids. We used to call them brontosaurus, which mm-hmm. was actually, I think, a diplodocus head on a body of a different dinosaur. So that whole species was just something that was not real, and they made it up. So now there's no more brontosaurus,es but diplodocus is, I guess, the next best, <laughs> the next closest but i think these guys just keep growing until they 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 die from whatever reason so the longer they live the bigger they get and they keep finding bigger and bigger ones so this this one was the biggest one and that's cool more that's reasons want to go to london <laughs> <laughs> that's all the news we're going to handle this year <laughs>
2: This podcast is sponsored by feminism.
0: Are you tired of conforming to gender norms that don't really fit who you are? Have you been frustrated in meetings by having others repeat what you just said and have the room react as if it's the first time they'd heard it? Are your loan rates higher and your salary lower than the guy sitting next to you in the office? Are you unable to express your emotions without being ridiculed? Maybe it's time to ask your doctor about feminism. Side effects might include empowerment, equal pay, respect, being seen, and being heard. Ask your doctor or therapist if feminism is right for you, or you can just decide for yourself. And now, back to our podcast. Forget. Fascinating. Forget. Fascinating.
1: Forget. Fascinating. Forget. Fascinating. Forget. Fascinating. Are you out of your pocket mind? Fascinating. 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 Fascinating.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. Welcome to the Geekscape, where one or both of us geek out about something, and today it's my turn, and I'm going to geek out about one of the more recent additions to the Star Trek universe. This is an animated cartoon. It's called Lower Decks, and I have been really enjoying it. It just finished its third season. Let's see. It takes place kind of in the normal timeline i would say it's definitely after next generation and after deep space 9 and possibly after voyager you know it's taking place after like the main timeline shows so it's it's you know it's not it's before picard and it's before some of (laughs) it's before season three of discovery because seasons one and two are before the original series so so it's sort of like in there you know because they do a lot of callbacks to these shows that have gone on before and it takes a minute to get into season one is a little rough like you're kind of like okay this is kind of goofy and quirky and by the end of season one, you're definitely hooked. <laughs> I'll so, say I was definitely hooked.
2: So I am ask. so I'm interested Talk. in this thing because I love animation and I like Star Trek, but I'm not like an aficionado. So would I as a kind of a newbie to the show, like would I enjoy it just because it's goofy and weird? Or do you would yeah. you only get it if you if you know all the references? Like how would that work?
1: No, 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 no. Well, it's hard to tell because I haven't watched it with anybody who wasn't also watching. If they're not like a huge Star Trek fan, they've at least seen all of it. Like, because I watch it with my spouse and he sat through many viewings of all of the Star Trek shows because we own them. And I watch, I will, you know, if I'm knitting, I put them on. If you are a fan of Star Trek, Lower Decks has a lot of great little Easter eggs that you will, you know, that they will just make you smile and be it, it's amusing and it's also gives them especially in this last season it gives them an opportunity to bring in guest voice actors from the earlier series like this last season they had an episode where they went to deep space nine so they had they had nana visitor i think was a voice actor on there and and Armin Shimmerman, if he's and I said, now I don't remember if he's still alive or not. So but they had Quark on there, so I'm assuming that was the voice actor who did Quark, you know, and and so they had some of the original Deep Space Nine cast in the show, which was really cute. And they also and then other episodes like Jonathan frakes shows up and does a Riker, you know, voice voiceover thing. And the captain is played by Don Wilson. Who was the voice of La Barbara on Futurama and other characters too? But her the big the big role she had on Futurama was La Barbara, and if and that, and that's you know one of my other geeky things is I will follow voice actors across their various ca- cartoons that they do. Cool. So when I saw that Don Wilson was that was playing the captain, I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to watch this now. the The cast is is, you know, it's a diverse cast. They have an Orion girl who plays uh, a science officer. All of the main characters are supposed to be lower decks. So you're really not on the bridge very much. Although I think in this last season, there was more interaction with the bridge crew. And some people were complaining that it wasn't as much lower decks as you would think. So you're it's like, everybody's an ensign, like all the main the, the five main cast characters are all Ensigns. One of them's a part of a, sci, a part cyborg. And then, like I said, there's an Orion. There's an Ensign Boimler who's the nerdy, goofy guy character. And he's voiced by Jack Quaid, who, who's been... Yeah, I think he's... What is he? Dennis Quaid and uh, Meg Ryan's kid. And he was in The Boys on Amazon as a actor actor and his voice acting is is he's ensign boimler and the other character mariner who i forget who voices her because she's not she's probably newer she's not like an old voice actor cast like from futurama so i don't know who she is (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'll figure it out and and have it memorized someday ensign mariner is and this is a slight spoiler because you don't know this, I think, until episode three. She's the daughter of the captain, and they at the beginning they try to keep that on the down low because it gets, I guess, awkward. Huh. She likes to break the rules and she likes to do her own thing, and she's always kind of getting everybody into situations. And those four people, you know, they get into it's it's funny. It has a lot of humor. I mean, you can see that even in the opening, the opening sequence, their their theme song. That you see the starship going through space like you do on all the other Star Treks, but there's always a problem. Like maybe it's like almost getting sucked into a black hole or it's it's zooming past. And when you see the back of the ship, there's like this giant alien like attached to the back of the ship.
2: Nice. <laughs> you know, and the so, opening's always a little bit different, like The Simpsons or something no, like that? Oh, no. no, it's not. It's the oh. same. It's the same. Oh, but
1: God. but it, it's funny. Right, right. You know, I mean, the other animated Star Trek that came out, in I think, last year was Star Trek Prodigy. And that one's geared towards children because it's got a Y7. And I think it's also like
2: a, a Paramount C, uh, Nickelodeon joint effort. And I had never even heard of that one. That's funny. That's cool. Well, oh,
1: it's it's a it's a much more serious show, and it's the C and it's more it's CGI animation instead of, you know, regular. This animation is like whatever the modern version of the painted cell animation is. It's flat. It's two mm-hmm. D. I mean, they might use three D models, but it's basically two D. You know, not very rendered animation. And I and that's it's. The kind of stuff I like to watch. I'm watching Prodigy as well, but it's it's a different, it's a completely different kind of show, which I I could talk about that too. But <laughs> we want to concentrate on Lower Decks. Lower Decks is supposed to be a comedy. It's supposed to be, it's not edgy like Rick and Morty or any of that. But it, it kind of gets leans that way. But they are still keeping it clean i'm trying to remember if there's actual cursing on it and i don't think so but the one nice thing about animation is they can do crazy shit that much cheaper than a live action show like you can have every kind of alien in a shot you know without low on your makeup budget for the year for example <laughs> you know because you're just drawing them so you know there's there's paclids there's orions there's there's zinti there's all you know any alien that has shown up in any star trek series that you've seen prior to this may make an appearance at one point or the other in the in this cartoon and like i said that's like the easter eggs that you're that if you're familiar with all the treks that you'll get, you right. know, that they hide, they don't even hide them. They just, they're just there or, you know, or somebody from next generation will show up, you know, for some reason to, to serve the plot or whatever. And then that would be that actor would be doing their voice. So that it's always a nice surprise to see, you know, people show up in, in this series.
2: Yeah. So what so. do you think made the, how did it come about that they did a comedy it just seems like such an interesting turn for the Star Trek Universe to do like animation and comedy. It's just like a whole different. I wouldn't have expected it or thought about it. And I think it's yeah, awesome.
1: well, I don't know if you remember after the original series ended, there was a Star
2: Trek cartoon, actually, oh my gosh, there was. I completely forgot with the original cast. what year was that like the seventies oh. Late- maybe it had to be the
1: seventies. Wow, it had. It maybe I, the eighty. No, it had the eighties was next generation, so it had to be the seventies, and it was only, I think it was only two seasons.
2: I completely based on. on that 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 happened. It's funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, one of the one of the the highlights for me was they had a they made a Larry Niven story into a star trek story and they use the Kazinti, which is a, a race of feline sapien kind of warlike cats that so they had them in there and i remember that that was something that i was like very was very excited about because i was really into larry niven at that time and seeing his as i recognized that that oh it's this story they're doing Ooh, ooh, ooh. so <laughs> that was fun Yeah, I don't know if it was one, one or two seasons. It wasn't on for very long. And there weren't a lot of cartoons. Right, right. So my guess is, you know, when they're sitting around thinking about how they can leverage the Star Trek franchise, you know, now that Disney has Star Wars, Paramount is, you know, competing with that. And they're figuring, all right, well, what if we do a cartoon? Or, or maybe, you know, the guys that are producing the cartoon approach Paramount and say, hey, we have an idea for a Star Trek cartoon. It was, I think it was a good idea. It, you know, and also the fact that it's, you know, lower decks. So you're basically, you know, there's an episode where I think it was this season, this last season three, where the main thing that was happening was I think I forget what they call it, but it's like garbage day where they have to go around to all of the senior officers' quarters and collect all of the dangerous artifacts they've collected over the last
2: year. Oh, wow,
1: you know, and and basically, they're triggering whatever terrible thing is supposed to is happens with these artifacts and that happens to them, and they have to fix that. So that was <laughs> that sounds fun. that was that was a, a plot that was a story that they did and it's mostly episodic although there are some things that continue from one episode to the next like as relationships grow they let the relationships grow between the the, the cast members they fill in backstories for people over the course of the of the of the series you know because there's some characters that like like the cyborg guy Rutherford. He doesn't remember a lot from before he got his electronic augmentation, Hmm. his cyber augmentation. He doesn't remember a lot from before then. And there was a reason for that, and that is explained over the course of the series. And there was, you know, they're they're in, what are they, it's the, the ship they're on is what they're calling California class. And their ship is called the Cerritos, which I am assuming is a city in California. There's El Cerritos.
2: And, yeah, El Cerritos. Okay. I think, maybe. Well,
1: at mm-hmm. one point, there's a whole bunch of California-class ships on in the story for some reason. And all of them, it's like... They, they, it's like they went through a, a map of California and picked all these little bitty towns all through California to name them all. And they and they named them all. And every, I guess everybody that lives in California got very excited about that. So, <laughs> so that was cute. It's, uh, it's good animation. The voice acting is good. The stories are good. And there was a story this season that featured an exocomp, which was a device that Wesley Crusher... I believe I don't know if he designed it or or he was involved in that episode in next generation it was an adaptable little robot that became self-aware and then and then they let it go off at the end of the the, the Star Trek episode and now suddenly there's an exocomp that's a member of the crew when I first saw it, I thought like, oh, my God, this is like what science fiction TV is supposed to be. And I was like, loved it, loved it, loved it. And then I watched it a second time and I'm going, oh, OK, this is basically just hitting on every single science fiction trope that's in every story or that had ever been in any story. And they packed it all into, you know, a 25 minute story, which actually gets pretty funny when you think about it.
2: Right. I would think it so, would get a little crowded.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There. But, but no, sad. I mean they managed they managed to do everything. It, it was that was <laughs> really incredible. But, also Jeffrey Combs plays at least one character. He plays a maniacal computer. They have a whole jail set up just specifically for maniacal computers, <laughs> <laughs> maniacal intelligent computers that want to take over everything. Right. <laughs> so they keep adding to that over the course of the series.
2: That's fine. So this, you, you said so this is on Paramount
1: and? Yeah, it's on Paramount
2: Plus. Okay. All right. I mean, that, that could also be the, another reason why they had
1: this series because they need something to keep subscribers <laughs> Between seasons of Picard and Discovery. Oh, you know, you they have to fill in. They have to fill in the schedule with more Star Trek stuff. Wow. So I guess a cartoon is a is a lower budget item than than a live
2: action series. <laughs> I guess. Well, this is cool. And they're they're finished the third season now, or they're in the third. Word? Yes. Okay. Yeah,
1: well they yeah, they when they do drop a season, it's one episode a week. For like ten weeks. So yeah, it finished it finished like last month or month or two months ago. Now they're showing Prodigy. Okay. Season two of Prodigy. And Prodigy is a totally different beast. So that one is a bunch of I wanna say children, but I don't think they're all children from a place way outside the Federation escape this slave labor camp in a stolen Star Trek prototype ship. That has a hologram Janeway. Wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's that's the uh the two second explanation of what Prodigy is. Cool. And that one's animated differently than it's a it's a three D CGI very textured animation and it's definitely geared towards children. But I've been enjoying it. I am a huge animation fan, so I watch a lot of different things so yeah
2: <laughs> and, and, and i am too and i tend toward kids animation type weird shows but i, I like i like a lot of different things too and yeah. uh
1: i i also have to point out robin's wearing a cat and a hat hat <laughs> yes so, so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly <laughs> i am a very silly person <laughs> Well, thank you for this. It's so, yeah. cool. I hope I will sure. catch up on some of this at least and get to see it. And it sounds like a lot yeah. of fun.
1: Well, if you want to come over for a marathon, we could do that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, we are here with David M. Higgins, and we're very excited for this conversation. David M. Higgins is a senior editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and they are the chair of the English department at Inver Hills College in Minnesota, where they teach classes on science fiction, graphic novels, and American literature. They're the author of Reverse Colonization, Science Fiction, Imperial Fantasy, and Alt Victimhood, which won the 2021 Science Fiction Research Association Book Award. One of the key topics the book explores is the way that uh, reactionary victimhood is enabled by reverse colonization fantasy by many on the political right. So welcome, David.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me
2: so yeah, this is this is great to have you here. And if you could, would you please just begin with some basic definitions that I know that you talked about in your intro to the book, but it would be good for our listeners to hear how do you define reverse colonization and, reactionary victimhood, and then also this great term imperial masochism, which I think was brilliant. But th- those, I think, are sort of the crux of what you're discussing.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, happy to do so. So, I think of so reverse colonization. Um, that's not a term that I created. Uh, there was a scholar named Stephen Arada who talked about Dracula as a reverse colonization narrative. There's some some work in, in like post-colonial literature that talks about colonization in reverse. but. You know, like in, in terms of science fiction specifically, a reverse colonization or speculative fiction like Dracula, a reverse colonization story would be um, you know I often think of War of the Worlds as being a kind of the, the quintessential example of a reverse colonization story. You know what happens in War of the Worlds? Well, H.G. Wells is writing about England being invaded by Martians, a technologically superior Martian force, right? Now, what Wells is doing there is he's asking you know, the people in England to imagine what it would be like if someone else was doing to you, the reader, what you, the British Empire, was doing to other people across the world through the process of colonization. He was specifically referring to the genocide of indigenous people in Tanzania, right? It was one of the things that he was kind of pointing towards in that um, Uh, In that discussion, so a reverse colonization story is a story where we, through the science fictional sort of like turning of tables, right, you're asked to imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end of you, you, the audience member who's presumably part of you know kind of like the Euro American mainstream culture, right, asked to imagine what it would be like to be on the other side of this thing that is often not seen or taken for granted in a particular way. So, you know, I basically my argument is is that there there had been these kinds of various types of reverse colonization narratives prior to like in early science fiction and in Victorian literature like Dracula. Dracula is a little different, you know. It's it's you you have this this foreigner, this vampiric person bringing his the dirt of his homeland, immigration fears, right? Uh, bringing the dirt of his homeland into your country and then preying on innocent white girls, you know, maybe becoming more uh, frighteningly more masculine than than the, the good boys at home or whatever, right? So you know, there there have been these different kinds of reverse colonization stories in speculative fiction for a really long time. My argument is that although those were sort of a subcurrent within science fiction, after the 1960s they become one of the main currents in science fiction so after the 1960s prior to the 1960s i think it was very possible for there to be a pro like a lot of science fiction was about the exploration and conquest of the glorious exploration and conquest of alien worlds right you know a lot of early science fiction was you know this, it, it, this burrows right uh, you're going out and i mean it's really westerns in space or colonial adventure narratives in space right is a lot of a lot of early science fiction. After the 1960s, I think that it becomes much less possible to write pro-imperial science fiction. Everybody wants to be on the side of the rebel alliance fighting against the empire. So that's the that's my quick and dirty on uh, on reverse colonization. Since the 1960s, I think there's been a decisive shift toward, you know, inviting audience members, even audience members who are white and male and part of privileged classes within imperial societies to imagine what it's like to be fighting on the side of the Rebel Alliance or you know, taking the red pill to uh, break free of the matrix that has colonized your mind, or to side with the local people against the big company that's coming to strip mine their world, all, all these different kinds of things. There's nothing inherently bad about this. you know, I think that what I argue about reverse colonization stories is sometimes this forms really great science fiction that invites us to stop taking for granted empire, colonization, right, racial capitalism, all these other kinds of problems in our world. as I was working on it, however, it became hard not to notice that that there's a lot of different ways that people can can use that turnaround. I, I noticed this in one of my classes. We were actually reading H. G. Wells, and you know, some of my students were like, oh wow, it was really I see, like it was really terrible what the British were doing. Like this makes me want to not be a colonizer anymore. And then there was another student who was like, actually, it makes me want to go out and get a gun in case aliens attack. And I was like, Oh, this is helping you to get into imagining like what you would need to do if you were a victim in order to like defend yourself. Against invaders, right? And and all that kind of thing. So that that then gets you to reactionary victimhood. What I discovered as I was looking at this are that, you know, reverse colonization stories or stories where we are invited to imagine that we are imprisoned or colonized or fighting against an evil empire can often be can often have wonderful critical potential and yet sometimes they are appropriated latched onto by reactionaries and that means like people on the very far right i'm not talking like rank and file republicans mm-hmm. i'm talking like far 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 right the types of types of people who will you know like sh- shooters right uh, and white supremacists incels hardcore anti-feminists other types like that I mean, this is sort of—it's all over the culture. But you know, I think that um, these stories, particularly things like the Red Pill from the Matrix, Dune is very popular. Like, you know, fear is the mind killer. We need to elevate our minds so that we can become Superman figures, and uh, all this other kind of stuff. Lead a revolution against the empire, right? Um, what I have found is that um, these stories have immense purchase, right? They've got immense appeal, right, within reactionary subcultures, you know, like incels, for example. And so you have like the, the weird, the very strange thing where you'll have like a story like The Matrix, which is on one hand uh, of like has been sort of celebrated as a kind of a very pro, you know, LGBT kind of like very liberal progressive story on one hand, you know, taking the red pill, you know, for for some, right, some some of the some of the aspects of that story have been have been taken by uh, have been have been have been found appealing by right people across the political spectrum, and uh, clearly the Wachowskis don't intend for it to be you know something that you know white supremacists would latch onto, but they have right. You have all these people who are like, yeah, we're going to take the red pill and we're going to learn that uh, contemporary society is filled with lies and illusions that have been foisted upon us by a liberal establishment of feminist superiority you know, fascists or whatever. And it's really, it's very strange, right? This is, these kinds of things. So, yeah, my argument is, is that, you know, in, in like science fiction, these kinds of science fiction stories have started to become, well, one popular all throughout the throughout Euro-American culture, for sure to surprisingly useful among reactionaries, right, in their self-identification as victims. And if you, if you turn on Fox News, if you really look at what's going on in the right, there's a, a, tr- a lot of discursive power, a lot of emotional power comes from latching on to the idea that we are victims, someone is coming to take what is ours, we need to stand up and fight, we need to drive away these people who have colonized us, who have occupied us, who have done all these terrible things to us. And of course, this is not, I mean, I want to say it's sort of nonsense in the sense that like many of these are the people who are in positions of privilege, power, right? They are the beneficiaries of the way that society is structured for uh, some people to have more advantages and others not have those advantages, right? So then that leads to that final term, which is um, imperial masochism, (laughs) which I uh, I sort of, I, I throw out as a term to describe the joy of imagining oneself as a victim. In order to exercise power over others, right, which is quite gross, right, in in uh, various ways, you know. So, um, in one chapter of the book, I write about Elliot Roger, who was an incel who went on a shooting rampage in Isla Vista, California, Mm -hmm. near UC Santa Barbara, and you know he he. The the depth of his self identification as a victim, because women will not sleep with him. That's what an incel means to be an involuntary celibate, right? He believed that he was victimized by women who refused to sleep with him and women in his life who refused to give him everything that he felt that he was entitled to. And because of that deep sense of victimhood, he was going to go out and shoot, right? Go out and make the world better, change everything that was wrong with the world in order to bring it back into alignment with what he wanted to. And that's the reactionary part, right? Let's get back to a world where, you know, women and minorities don't have all this power in society, supposedly, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, um, that is an overview of the keywords and kind of a, a walkthrough of the main ideas of the book.
1: And thank you. Also touching on some of the questions we were gonna ask you. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm kind of long
0: winded. I apologize. No, I've been going to all these. No, layers. that's <laughs> fine. That's fine.
1: Uh, no, I had I had a question which is I wanted to know how something could be both like your example uh with the Matrix, you know, how something could be the What is it? A transgender coming out story mm-hmm. and also right. the imaginative foundation for White supremacy and right. anti-feminism at the same time, and you kind of answered it ish. <laughs> you could
0: elaborate oh. a little bit. I, I, yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think that's a great question, and it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot after the a, a, in the aftermath of the book, after in the aftermath of finishing this book. You know, I mean, so there, there's the the first level answer is people can identify with characters and stories in all kinds of ways that authors don't have any control over right you know so that is to say how 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 we as audience members see and relate to a film like the matrix or a franchise like star wars or any of these or dune you know or any of these kinds of stories you know i mean it just comes down to people people receive things in different ways but then, the more I really got to thinking about it, and I haven't written, I didn't write about this in in that first book. I'm, I'm, it's kind of where I'm going next is, yeah. But you have to really kind of push against the grain in some cases to imagine that the Matrix is a you know a story about white supremacy or that it's a story about anti feminism. <laughs> I mean, there's some weird, there are some things, there's some arguable moments right um, in 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 the film. But like you, you really, it's like how do you get there, right? And the answer that I'm kind of moving towards more now is. You get there in communities of reception, which is to say, mm. you don't just individually go watch The Matrix and arrive at the idea that I need to take the red pill and you know like rebel against uh, liberalism in the West. You arrive at that by being part of online ecosystems, message boards, social media environments, places where other people are using that as an example over and over and over again to fortify a worldview, right? So that's kind of the the next direction that I'm actually going is media ecosystems, right? Like how, you know, it's you know we say oh we're all in our own we're all in our own like uh, echo chambers now. Yeah, but some of those echo chambers are really weird and really problematic and powerful and it's it's really striking if if you are you know, if, if if you're a little discontented about something, you could probably find a group that will help amplify and direct that discontentment into politically charged directions, you know what I mean? And a lot of times great. they'll be leaning <laughs> on those, yeah, leaning on those science fiction stories in, in very uh, repetitive ways. So anyway, yeah.
2: That yeah, is actually yeah. very, uh, It's again, you're anticipating our <laughs> That's great. <laughs> because one of the things that I was thinking about is that it was actually really eye-opening to me to realize that the power of the term red-pilling really just came directly out of that science fiction film. And I mean, I knew it cognitively, but I hadn't thought about like, oh, wow, that's true. That was just a term in a movie that is completely pervasive. Now everyone knows what that means, you know? Right. And so I was thinking like, what is the relative influence of some of the smaller seeming movements, you know, like Gamergate, and and things like that as opposed to like a huge movie and and what is their influence really on the political landscape because i know i hear a lot about it on twitter or something which is its own weird well exploding universe right now but like in the overall scheme of things like how big are those things are they influencing the the influencers or what you know what is that those sort of small communities on the internet but i imagine they have more influence than i could ever we'll- think
0: you know, it's really fascinating, this Twitter thing right now, because I, I, the more I think about it, it's like we we have fewer and fewer media commons that everyone, like they're the larger groups of people are all connected into you know like when I was a kid like what was our our media environment was very unified it's like ABC CBS NBC right like everyone's kind of growing up and watching the same three channels and so those channels created a sense of common worldview for right for good or for ill in some ways good in other ways ill created a cut like it created a a An American mainstream, which was never everyone, of course, right? But it created at least a kind of, you know, a center point, a commons, right? Like where, well, we all saw it on, you know, Tom Brokaw, oh, you know, whatever, sixty Minutes or something, right? Like there was there was a sense that, like, the reality we were looking at, at least there was some commonality, right? You know, because everyone was sort of like arriving at it in the same, you know, uh, through the same information source. The the Twitter explosion, I think, is really like profoundly important right now because I think that we we grow more and more nichified, right? We to 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 use the term sort of from earlier, right? Like we're we're more and more into like uh, smaller niches, uh, smaller subgroups. You know, like oh, now I'm going to be on Mastodon rather than on Twitter, and now I'm going to be on a, a private Discord rather than on Facebook or whatever, and. On one hand, like I want to celebrate that I'm like, oh, this means that everyone can find and speak to their people. There can be a kind of richer diversity. Some voices aren't going to be excluded from the mainstream, as 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 they were in that mainstream two five seven era, right? But it also means that everybody, including your kind of neo Nazis, gets to have their own little private channels, right? And it's all sort of just this marketplace of who are you going to connect with, where do you find belonging, and all the rest. You know, so I think like something like GamerGate. You know, like when you you kind of bring up GamerGate or PuppyGate or these various sort of like right wing or reactionary kind of like you know, so like t- take back, make video games great again, make science fiction great again. <laughs> these kinds of movements, right? Um, right. You know, they, like, you've always had people in, you know, off, often in corners, right, who, who have kind of had those, those feelings, those perspectives. The question now is like, how do they how, how do how does anybody um, build and a, a bigger audience, right, like reach a bigger audience can, you know, enroll more people into that worldview into that movement into that discussion into that community into that conversation. And, you know, I, I think, I think it's really, the, the more I kind of look at this, the more, I, you know, it's like I, I, a lot of times I look at mass shooters, right? Uh, and it's very surprising how many mass shooters have written science fiction novels that they've self-published on the internet, right? Of talking about their disgruntled feelings, right? Uh, and imagining in some cases the things that they're, this, this happened with the Denver shooter, right? Like the, the, this was in December, we've had so many shootings. There was a mass shooting in Denver in December of 2021. And that shooter, Lyndon McLeod, wrote a trilogy of science fiction novels uh, expressing his discontent and kind of really like laying out exactly what he was going to do in the shooting that he, he then went on in those science fiction novels. But because he wrote those science fiction novels, some other groups in the manosphere, right, the sort of like anti feminist <laughs> men's rights movement kind of area, they were like, wow, those books are great. Come talk on our podcast. Come be a part of this thing, and so you get this circulation of ideas in these corners, right? and how big do they get? Who are they speaking? who are they reaching? you know these this 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 set of questions I think it's really really complicated, you know so yeah, I think I don't know that was a little bit rambling, but <laughs> there are some thoughts <laughs> to <across> that question. <laughs> yeah,
2: thank you, absolutely this
1: question is definitely science fiction based and way less politically based because i just i'm curious as to what your if a if you've seen the new star treks uh which i'm really more interested in discovery over brave new world but i i i want to know what your thoughts are about those two new series and if they are Playing into this coloniz- reverse colonization trope, or if they're breaking it, or what? So
0: yeah, oh, that's great. I love the new Star Trek stuff. I haven't watched the Picard verse sort of stories happening over there, but I have done a Brave. I have done uh, Discovery, and I have done Brave New uh, Brave New Worlds, and I love them both. I think they're really great. I haven't actually like maybe dug into them intellectually as much as I should. I've just been kind of like enjoying them. I think what I'd say about Discovery, you know, one of the questions I often get asked when I kind of talk about this. is <laughs> (laughs) They're like, you know, uh, when I talk about the the reverse colonization stuff, they're like, isn't it because Neo is a white guy or looks like a white guy? Isn't it because Luke Skywalker is a white guy that white guys can then identify as like the rebels or insurgents fighting against? Like, don't we need a change in the representation in terms of the characters? Don't we need, if we have more black characters, if we have more characters of color, if we have more women, if we have more Burnhams, right? If we have more Michael Burnhams in the world, doesn't that make it harder to right imagine yourself the white guy as the victim who has to fight against the empire right and I think that yes obviously that is I, I do think that that is a big part of it so I think that great, greater diversity in greater diversity in our storytelling and in our representations makes this issue it changes the game right in in really important ways so this is one of the things I love about discovery you know I think that discovery it's like I, I have no idea how you would weaponize discovery for for a reaction <laughs> That's just, it's just so like I don't I do have no idea how a white supremacist could be like yeah I'm the Michael Burnham of my generation it's like no you're not <laughs> you know like. <laughs> So on one hand, I think like the like what I, I love Discovery. I love that we have non-binary characters in Discovery. I love the I I love the the thoughtfulness of its entire approach to you know a new generation of Star Trek speaking to the the issues of its day. I think it's doing a really great job uh, along those lines. Brave New Worlds, I, or, I I think is really fun. It doesn't seem as as smartly written to me. Uh, it seems it's very fun. I love it. It's it's uh, it's very enjoyable, uh, but it's a little bit more popcorn Star Trek as far as I was concerned.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I was I I just want to you know when I want to I think it was season three when they went to the future, and mm-hmm. there will be spoilers uh, if you haven't seen Discovery because I can't not. I was making an observation looking at the bridge crew and I'm going, "Wow, the only white guy is wearing alien makeup." <laughs> and I was like really happy
2: about that.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think I do. I think it's I think it the the diversity of representation in in Discovery is great and like the the writing overall is really great. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's it's hitting so many things and and doing them uh, brilliantly, I think. So, yeah
1: yeah i I also think brave new world happened because of reactionaries because they had to get the white guy back in the chair i kind of that's that's my take on it you know uh, it's why they brought pike in for season two (laughs) and it's it's speaking to original trek Mm
0: -hmm. it's kind
1: of bringing original trek into the 21st century
0: yeah
1: i guess the 23rd century into the 21st century
0: (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. I mean, Brave New Worlds is certainly much wider in terms of its cast, right? And 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 doing something that's much more nostalgia-driven, right? Which, you know, the politics of nostalgia are a whole weird thing, right? Like whether whether that be Star Trek or, you know, Stranger Things or, or whatever. I don't know that nostalgia is always, always has to be reactionary, but I mean, yeah, it, it is. It is a much more, I guess if you're, if, if I have seen people who are uncomfortable with how quote-unquote woke Discovery is, I use that with a suspect term, I'm Not trying to, you know, like... Uh, uh, I, I know, I know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I, I guess that, that Brave New Worlds really does offer a, a much more comfortable, a more comfortable kind of Star Trek for for that that type of fan. I wonder if that's why, yeah. you think that's what they're trying to do, is to to multi-audience, right? Like, we're, we're going to have our, our really, really progressive audience will be into Discovery, and then our, like, we, but we don't want to lose our mainstream <laughs> fans, so we'll have break new Ghost. maybe that is what
1: they're doing i don't know yeah I, I kind of get the feeling they're doing that with the star wars universe mm-hmm. with all of the various spin-off shows that uh, that disney's been putting out mm-hmm. that that they are trying to appeal to a, you know there's a series that would be more appealing to left more progressive people and other series that are more appealing to conservative
0: people sure Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah get that feeling. I think you're right. I mean, I think this is. This is, you know, Disney. Disney is trying to. <laughs> I, I could hear some of my colleagues in my brain already. They're like, all Disney cares about is profit, right? Uh, and so <laughs> they want to powerfully, powerfully appeal to th- those of us who have strongly left-leaning sentiments, but they also want to powerfully appeal to those people who have right-leaning sentiments. But they don't want to do it in such a way that they're going to make th- these people mad at them for that. You know, so it's, there's multicoding, right? That exactly that kind of like I think a lot of franchises you know whether that be star wars disney star trek etc cetera, etc cetera, are like they're trying to figure out that that franchise multi-coding you know what i mean how yeah. to how to get all these niche niche audiences with dramatically different political sentiments <laughs> uh you know um to spend money on their product <laughs> yeah for sure
1: and i i also i want to recommend this book and as i was reading it and i saw it was published in 2021 because i started reading it and i said like, god damn it this this needs a hugo nomination and Oh. It's too late for that one, but I need to know when your next one's coming out So I can advocate for you in that community and, and I don't know I had a point and it's gone what,
0: Wait, what's the book? You, <laughs> you didn't give us the book. What's the book you're, you're suggesting? The book? Oh,
1: the book you... I,
0: reverse oh, my Colonization! Book. Oh, your I, book. I thought you were, talk- I you thought you were gonna give me book. a book recommendation!
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I want to recommend this book to our listeners. Oh. So it's very, it's, it's really... I haven't read a lot of science fiction commentary and this was really eye-opening uh i will i will tell my listeners that if you're a huge science fiction fan like i am and have been reading it your whole life it's gonna mess up your childhood a little bit because you're gonna (laughs) understand things about stuff that it didn't really occur to you while you were reading it when you were 15 (laughs) and uh yeah i also wanted to just when you were talking before about the California shooter and I make it sort of deliberately to not remember their names, but yeah. I do kinda remember Charles Manson being a huge Heinlein fan and that Heinlein was kinda horrified about that. Oh
0: yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. This well this was yeah And the I
2: way mean, he <laughs> interpreted Helter Skelter too. It's like mm-hmm. Yeah. He took some yeah. good things and made it very weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, *Stranger in a Strange Land* uh, affects is is very effective, right? And that's that's actually what's really interesting to me too is like how how these books can can resonate with people so differently, right, across different spectrums, you know? Because *Stranger in a Strange yeah. Land* is his counterculture classic, and then <laughs> but then I guess Charles Manson is a counterculture classic too, so uh, <laughs> in his own different weird,
1: counter, he countered the other way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he well he thought of himself very much. As being not not going the other way of the counterculture, but being the kind of the epitome of the counterculture, right? You know, like, yikes, we're we're, yikes. we're gonna we're gonna break on through to the other side, right? It's that's the the <sighs> slipperiness of. Well, it's, I had a friend. She, she said this on Facebook the other day. Which it, it, I I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but she's like, it's not. It's this shows the problem with being you know anti-establishment without actually having a sense of right like anti-established in in, in, a, in an empty formal sense, right like when you're anti-establishment because the establishment is bad man, but you don't actually have a specific <laughs> definition of what the the bad thing in the establishment is, then the establishment just becomes a the the boogeyman that everybody can fight against, you know what I mean whether that be you know um, for, for for legitimate kind of <laughs> progressive politics or like you know reactionary victimhood kind of stuff for sure yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Wow, that just explained think- punk rock to me too. If you think what about, did you? You just explained <laughs> punk rock movements and permutations in, in a brief moment there too. I was thinking about, you know, coming out of like the labor, yeah, uh, active people in in London and very multiracial, and then somehow you wind up with Nazi punks.
0: That, Nazi punks, right? Would we would just, just fight the man, right? Right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah.
2: Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> um, I did just want to ask you, and it, this has been flowing really well too. And and so I'm curious about the what you think the ultimate role of artists and writers is in all of this. Mm-hmm. As we we want to take care of our culture and democracy, and how how can we do that? Like, is it really to write from consciously political positions, or is it to just sort of develop an understanding and awareness of where you are? In the culture, because so much of this, it sounds to me like people are writing from their own sort of experiences and fantasies and it and maybe realizing the scope of the background that they have that goes into making it or maybe not. But people can certainly interpret it in their own way. So, yeah. So do we write consciously to counter these kinds of movements? Do we just stay aware of who we are and where we're writing from? And does that help remedy this and sort of take care of what we need to?
0: Yeah, boy, that's a big question. <laughs>
2: I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I try to ask the big questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, no, I I think that's a really great question. I mean, I I don't have a, an ultimate answer for the the role of the writer and the artist in culture, right? Um, but I but I would I would say this. I think. I do think science fiction writers, for example, right, um, good science fiction writers are aware of the history of the genre, right? So that one, you're not just telling the same story that everybody's told before, but two, so that you're not reproducing some of the problems that have been inherent in the genre up until that point. You know, so if you set off, if you set off to write a science fiction story, and there's some people who are just like, I just want to, I want to write a ripping science fiction yarn. And you're like, okay, so by ripping science fiction yarn, do you mean a colonial, adventure tale where the heroic white masculine adventurer heads off into the alien unknown and eliminates a bunch of monsters on a world that, you know, happen to be probably a metaphor that you haven't recognized for indigenous people in a, in a foreign place, probably you shouldn't rewrite that story, right? Probably you should be aware of the history of the, if you're writing a genre type of thing like that, I think that you, I think good science fiction writers are aware of the history of the genre, where it has done beautiful things, where it has had problems, right? And then choose to make your intervention based on that awareness right so I mean I think that's I think and I think that we do see this with writers today I think could uh, speculative fiction writers across the board they know the genre that they are writing in they know like how it's been received they know like who has done great things who has done things that are kind of we think of now as cringe <laughs> you know what I mean uh, and so I think you know I I d- does that mean that you then as a science fiction writer have to write a, a specific political perspective or something like that. No, I, I think there's there's room for artists to do all sorts of different things. And I, I certainly think that some of the best artists are the ones who, who are thinking quite differently than everyone else around them, you know, in various ways, you know, are kind of moving in a new direction, have a different kind of creative start, want to kind of innovate a new style, want to go somewhere where where their muse is taking them, so to speak, right? But I do think that the that being blind to the history, right? You know, I mean this is true for mainstream literary histories too, right? It's not just science fiction people, right? Like if you're if you're wanting to write mainstream literary fiction, knowing something about Literature, right? the hist- the history of literary movements, like how people have approached formal experimentations. Do you have to have a PhD? No, right. Like, but I do think being aware of uh uh of of genres of movements of how your work will be recognized as part of those kinds of genres and movements, whether you're trying to be recognized within them or not, you know, is going to be is is an important thing to do. You know, so I don't know if that really answers your question. I think you know, I I, I guess I would say in summary. I think that artists should be aware of the histories. You know like like it's kind of like this, right? Like if you're an artist and you're putting your art out into the world, you know, you're partly doing that for you, but you're also entering a conversation in progress, right? That is the the world of art and cultural production and literary production and all the rest. You know, and nobody likes that person who just bangs the door in and starts yelling at everybody about their opinions in the conversation, right? <laughs> like uh, having some sense of what's been happening in that conversation and how how you can Add to that, or move that in a direction, or whatever. I think is is um, is one of the best one of the best approaches.
2: Thank you. That is actually a very good answer about how to <laughs> what to think about. You know, yeah. 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 And it you also yourself
1: dovetails kind of well into my next question, which I think is our our last question of the day. Which is, do you have some new authors that you recommend in the in the science fiction genre, and who are they? <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, that's great! What a great question. So many <laughs> awesome. There's so many great writers right now. Are you? Are you probably? You're already familiar with N.K. Jemisin, right? Uh, yes. Who is a really significant science fiction, speculative fiction writer right now. She wrote the Broken Earth trilogy, which is quite brilliant. And m- more recently, she has a duology of books. The first one is The City We Became, and then the second one, which just came out, is called The World We Made. And they're brilliant. They're they're just great. N.K. Jemisin is uh, um, is I think just the the top one of one of the top voices kind of working in in speculative fiction right now. And there's so many others, too. You know, um, I I have to say, personally, I've really been thrilled by a role-playing game that just recently came out called Coyote and Crow. This is an, it's a, it was kickstarted, so I don't know if you like role-playing game, D&D, that kind of stuff, but um, this is a, you know, there's been this sort of long tradition of role-playing games and this group, Coyote and Crow, almost all, all or almost all indigenous artists, authors, and creators kickstarted their own game uh, called Coyote and Crow, and it's a fantastic game that's set in an alternate uh, North America that was never colonized by e- European forces, right? And so it's this mm. kind of like alternate u- hope-punk utopian vision that you can go and role-play in, and it's designed for everybody too. You might say, like, I don't know that as a non-Indigenous person I should play this game, I feel uncomfortable. They're like, We'll address that with you. Here's how to play this game as a someone who is not, right, uh, uh part of an Indigenous community. Like, if you are part of an indigenous, you know, like tribe or culture, then here are some things for you, and if you're not then here are some ways to play and not be you know, a, a culturally appropriative scumbag while you're playing our games. Like, all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And it's so smart. It's really, really brilliant. Brilliant game. Really, really beautiful. You know, on the nonfiction level, I really appreciate you plugging my book. Um, I would also plug my colleague and, and, and friend, Joy Sanchez Taylor, has a really great book that came out last year also called Diverse Futures, Science Fiction Ooh. and Authors of Color. And so, basically, she's looking at um, science fiction by creators of color in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Uh, and it's a beautiful book, really smart, really, really good. So, if you if you want another one of those, you know, academic Excellent. science fiction books, right? She's uh, she's a great <laughs> a great one too. <laughs> I could go on was. and on with recommendations. If you want more and more, I could keep going. But I'll, I'll stop.
2: There. <laughs> if you if you have others, that maybe you want to send us. We we do show notes, and you know, if something great. comes to mind, it's like, oh, we. We really should have included that. Like, we'll definitely get it on their notes and let folks know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's yes. Great thank talking you, for, you for being great. here. Great.
0: Thanks so much. Really great to uh, to speak with you both. And uh, thanks for having me on the show.
2: Absolutely. Well, in lieu of you got questions, we got answers, we wanted to ask ourselves what we think of our season of democracy, what worked, what moved us, any any kind of ideas about what we've looked at over this ten or so show season? Well,
1: our season started over the summer and there were some pretty big freaking shakeups on like the micro level. My city had a, a primary challenge or for mayor, which caused a lot of changes. Well, I don't know, changes, but it made our current mayor who won the primary, and he, he's won the election because I don't think anybody ran against him in the, in the general. He became a much more active mayor. He did a lot more things for the community. He got the local musicians paid to, you know, paying them to entertain us and a lot of things like that on the, on the very local level. And, you know, and then the Supreme court fucked us all <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know what else to say, it, you know, and, and then we had our midterms and it, and it's felt almost overwhelming with the amount of just shit going on in, in the country. And, you know, and then, and then the president, deciding that the pandemic is over and and suddenly nobody's wearing masks anymore except for like me and
2: and me (laughs) yeah we're like among the last holdouts it seems yeah i i share your sense of overwhelm with the season i feel like i did a lot of things by the seat of my pants because i just had so much going on and i'm hoping that it held together for folks i think our show's you know, I mean, I overall enjoyed them, uh, and I was always kind of a little surprised. I was like, "Wow, that actually came out okay," <laughs> you know, because I I constantly feel like maybe it's a bit of imposter syndrome where I feel like, "Boy, I'm I sound like shit. This isn't working at all," you know. And then I listen <laughs> back, and and your editing is magic for sure. So that's oh, a part please. of it. But when I listen back, I'm like, "Oh, okay." that wasn't, that was okay. You know, and even sometimes it is just the actual words I said, like I'm thinking in my head, like that sounded stupid. And it, it sounded, it sounded fine, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, so that happens. I really liked your interview with Danny Vargas. I feel like getting a little glimpse into what it feels like to, to get into the, you know, your, your very local political system. Um, And also just sort of your easygoing conversation with him in general was really cool, but it, it did. I won't say it inspired me to go run for office locally, but it got me a step (laughs) closer to knowing that that's a thing one can do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you could, you could just join your local party. That's true. You start there apparently, you know, and and that, and the other thing I, I liked talking to Danny was, I guess he's a millennial. Yeah. A young on the younger towards the younger end of the millennial age range because he's a little older than my daughter and and I know my daughter is like I think the millennial cutoff was like a year after her okay you know she's like the she's like the youngest millennial and and then we're I guess what is it Gen Z after that <laughs> I don't yes. even know Gen Z <laughs> but it was it was really nice to talk. To a young person, you know, somebody who, not young, young, but like somebody around the thir- around, around 30, I don't remember which side of 30 he's on, but, you know, it's, and it's nice. And it was refreshing to just hear how energetic they are and how they're actually interested in politics and what's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to me at that age who was worrying more about, you know, getting a house or whatever. And, mm. and tr- and you know, I would go vote. I think I don't even know if I voted in the smaller elections. I definitely voted in presidential elections, but I was definitely one of the one of the 20 somethings that didn't give a shit about any of that stuff because mm. it didn't it didn't impact me specifically. Right, was, right. You know. When I had those blinders on, I was a, uh, I didn't want to be a yuppie, but I probably was. Okay. So,
2: Interesting. I didn't know that because I, I feel like I think of you as an activist from way back, but I guess you, everyone, uh, I guess goes through periods of it where you figured engaged me, and then me, not so much. Well, yeah, you know, I was
1: doing the feminist thing. You know, I was being an engineer in a in a time when women weren't engineers you Mm -hmm. know there were out of let's say 600 engineers there were four of us who were women you know i was in that environment and 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 i and and if that's being an activist then i was an activist but you know i was basically just trying to make a living
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um it didn't feel like being an activist i mean i had to push back on people but it was a one-on-one kind of thing, like, you know, don't talk to me that way. <laughs> right,
2: right. Well, that matters
1: <laughs> that a lot. That kind of shit. Cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was doing. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't worrying about what was going on in Washington. Right. I was worrying about what was going on in my office.
2: Mm-hmm. So, that actually brings me to the other interview I really I want to go back and listen again to my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Vanderweel, who talked about well, she is a fear expert and talked about a lot, you know, aspects of that, but also just about how history really informs her way of understanding where we are now in, in politics and how that can. And it's helped, it's been helping me. I've been listening to, to having that conversation, listening to some other stories and, and podcasts about how we've evolved and sort of the long view of democracy and that it it makes me a little less scared for where we are now, but also aware of what can go wrong and how we can like keep moving in a positive direction. Hopefully I do feel a little more hopeful than I did. Maybe when we started this season, our election came out not as badly as we thought it might, you know? So that's part of it. But also uh, Dr. Vander story, assessment that, you know, a lot of things in Washington don't necessarily feel like they have a lot of bearing to immediate life in on the West Coast, you know, mm. for her. And, and, and how just sort of creating our own communities and doing, what's, doing what the best thing is where you are matters a lot, you know? So like what you were saying about just informing someone how to speak to you <laughs> in a situation. <laughs> matters, you know. And and that and I can see how not all the details of Washington politics really necessarily is what's the most important thing, you know. Yeah. So, but we're going to take a break after the show. And we're not sure exactly what's coming up next, but I guess we'll keep people aware yeah. as, as we figure it out. <laughs>
1: we'll still be
2: putting up segments
1: yes. on Patreon during our hiatus so there'll be segments
2: on patreon there'll be some redux shows
1: yeah if you want to make sure that you hear our voices in a timely fashion you know become a patron
2: yes that that absolutely we'll uh ensure that (laughs) that's our season that's our season of democracy thank you for listening Yeah. And I'm Robin Renee. You can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter for now at Spirit Rock Sexy. I'm on Discord and in subgenius circles as Andrew Genus. So if you travel either one of those, let me know and maybe we can connect. Hi, I'm Wendy
1: Sheridan. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards. And on Twitter, while it's still there, at
2: Wendy Designs. And on Etsy, at Wendy Cards with a Z. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. So please do send us your shout-outs and questions, and we will catch up with you. So until next time. Be well. See you in 2023. And keep left.
1: You've been listening to the Left Skate Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Left Skate. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftskate. Thanks for listening.